It's been a while since I've made use of school textbooks, but I remember the end of the chapter that would have the, that series of questions there and help you think through and, and review what you had just learned from the chapter. And the best part, of course, of, of any good textbook is that you can flip to the back of the book and find all the answers to those questions, right? Right? Uh, those questions and answers uh, at the end of the chapter and the end of the book were a tool to help you learn and, and study. Uh, at, at other times in my education, uh, I've made use of flashcards to, to help me learn. And, and they're the same thing. They're that Q&A, question and answer. You've got the question on one side and the answer on the other to help you learn. These were especially helpful for learning vocabulary words, both in those high school science classes where you're trying to figure out all, all sorts of stuff, or in my Greek and Hebrew classes that I took in college and grad school, trying to figure out all those different words. Have you ever used flashcards to help you learn and, and study? something, right? This question and answer is a really helpful tool. And if you have your Bible, go ahead and open up to Psalm 15. Psalm 15 is where we're going today as we continue through the Psalms this summer. This Psalm, Psalm 15, is, is sort of an ancient form of Q&A. And it's intended to instruct the people, not in high school science, but rather in lives of worship. So let's read together. Psalm 15, beginning in verse 1. O Lord, who may abide in your tent? Who may dwell on your holy hill? Those who walk blamelessly and do what is right and speak the truth from their heart, who do not slander with their tongue and do no evil to their friends, nor take up a reproach against their neighbors, in whose eyes the wicked are despised, but who honor those who fear the Lord, who stand by their oath even to their hurt, who do not lend money at interest and do not take a bribe against the innocent. Those who do these things shall never be moved. This is the word of God for the people of God. Let's pray. Oh Lord, thank you for the gift of your word to us. I pray that as we consider the words of this psalm, that you would sharpen our minds and soften our hearts, that we might know you and love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. So as I mentioned, we can see that this psalm is kind of an ancient flashcard to instruct the people of God. It begins with a question, proceeds with an answer, and then it ends with a promise. Now, in the history of the church, there's actually a name for something like this. It's called a catechism. A catechism. Now, some of you may hear that and think, cata what? And others may hear it and think, wait, isn't that some sort of a Catholic thing? And it is, but, but it's really just a Christian thing, even a Church of Christ thing. The, the word catechism comes from the Greek word katakeo, which means simply to instruct. And Churches of Christ love giving instruction, right? We love teaching and preaching. This is a form of catechism. 
So catechism is simply a tool for instruction, for teaching. And most catechisms have historically been made in some sort of a question and answer format. So, so it turns out that those modern textbook study guides and, and flashcards are actually just following centuries of Christian wisdom and practice known as catechism. Now, it's true that the Catholic Church has a catechism, but there are many other Christian catechisms as well. In fact, many of the popular catechisms came about after the Protestant Reformation in the, in the 1500s. s Martin Luther wrote a small catechism with a series of questions and answers about the Ten Commandments, the Apostles' Creed, the Lord's Prayer, Baptism, and Communion. Uh, the Church of England uh, included a catechism in, of questions and answers whenever they put together their Book of Common Prayer uh, in the 1500s. A couple of other catechisms from this time period were the Westminster Catechism and also the Heidelberg Catechism. All of these were put together in that question and answer format, and, and, and many of these are still used to this day. by many churches to help them learn and teach Christian faith. I'll share a little bit from them with you. Here's, here's one. The Westminster Catechism begins with the question, what is the chief end of man? Right? What is the ultimate purpose of humanity? And, and, and the answer that it gives is, well, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Right, that's a beautiful place to begin. What a wonderful question. What a wonderful answer. Right, that sets the stage for all, our whole purpose of living. Glory to God and joy in God. Here's another one. The Heidelberg Catechism begins with the question, what is your only comfort in life and in death? And the answer that it gives is this, that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Wow, that's another beautiful place to begin, right? Our only comfort in life and in death is that we belong to Jesus, who is faithful, These are just a couple of examples of, of ancient Christian catechisms. But the point is that they are meant to provide instruction in the faith. But as you can tell, they don't only inform the mind, but they also stir the heart. These ancient catechisms don't just talk of dry, abstract theology, but of joy and comfort, of glory and hope. Now, one valuable thing about these traditional catechisms is that they do not only give answers, but they also provide questions. And I think this is so helpful because a lot of times we run around looking for answers only to find that we were actually asking the wrong questions all along. Right? This has absolutely been my experience of education. Uh, you know, I started off in search of information and answers, but the more that I've learned, the more that I've ended up discovering not the answers to my questions, but rather better questions to be asking to begin with.
I love this about Jesus, right? There are so many times that someone comes to him with a question, and instead of giving them an answer, he gives them a better question. The Pharisees come to him and ask, should we pay taxes to Caesar? And Jesus responds, well, whose image is on the coin? Which implies the question, well, whose image is on you? Or another time, a man comes to ask Jesus, good teacher, what must I do for eternal life? And Jesus responds, why do you call me good? Beginning to stir his heart up into wonder. Or another time, the disciples ask, where can we get enough bread to feed all of these people? And Jesus responds, how many loaves do you have? Right? Jesus shows us the way towards spiritual growth. Sometimes instead of searching for answers, we would do well to pause and interrogate our questions a little bit. There very well may be better questions to be asking. So all this to say is that Psalm 15 is a form of catechism. It is an instruction for God's people in their life of faith. Now, let's look at it a little bit more closely. What question does it start with? And then what answer does it provide? Well, Psalm 15 begins with a question stated two different ways in verse 1. O Lord, who may abide in your tent? Who may dwell on your holy hill? This is temple language that it's using. It is worship language that it's using. God's tent is a reference to the tabernacle that they carried with them in the wilderness where they worshiped God. The holy hill that it mentions is a reference to the place where the tabernacle was set up and later where the temple would be built. Again, it is the place where they worshiped God. So this psalm is ultimately about worship. And as we've already said, starting with this question is important. Starting with this question tells us that God's people are meant to be a people of worship. It's not just a question about actions, about getting things done or doing stuff. It's a question about worship. And the rest of the psalm is going to be an exploration of what it looks like to be worshipers. What it looks like to be a people of worship. And the answer that is given is really not what we would expect when we're thinking about worship. Because when we think about worship, we usually think of getting together for songs, a sermon, for communion. And in the time of the tabernacle, people would have thought about music, but they would have also been thinking about sacrifices to be made and, and so on. But the rest of this psalm says nothing of songs to sing or sacrifices to bring. Rather, it talks about speech. It talks about friends and neighbors. It talks about making and spending money. The answer that the psalm provides is about everyday life. I love the tangible language that the psalmist uses. There's walking and standing. There are tongues and eyes. These are physical, embodied, tangible things, tangible actions, everyday stuff. So the psalm tells us something I think very important about God. 
It shows us that God is not uh, just concerned with religious duties. God is not some angry deity waiting to be appeased by sacrifices and religious action. Rather, God is deeply concerned with all of life. God does not just desire religious acts, but rather pure hearts, out of which kind speech, deep relationships, and, and even fair economies flow. This is what it means to worship. Worship changes everything. It affects what we say and how we say it. It transforms the relationships we have with our friends and our neighbors, and it even affects how we spend our money, the things that we purchase, the things we give to, the things we invest in. God cares about all of life, and worship affects all of life. But here's the problem. As we read this psalm, we don't have to think too hard to realize that it's not describing us, right? D did you live blamelessly this past week? Have your words been untrue or unkind at all? Is there any kind of wrong that exists between you and your neighbor or friend? Have you failed to, to stand up against evil? Have you been careless with your money? Man, we all fail all the time. And as we work through the answer that this psalm provides, we can see again and again how we have failed. Now, there are a few different responses we can have to this as, as we look through this and realize, man, we have just fallen so short. One of them is to hear this psalm as a litany of failure and shame, right? With each line, we can sink down a little bit deeper in our seat to know just how pitiful we are. But another response is, is actually quite the opposite. We can hear it as a list of rules to follow. And with each line, we try to sit up a little bit straighter, as we prep ourselves to check everything off this list. I think that these two responses are the typical ways that we have been taught to respond to things, especially in the church. Religious shame or religious pride. We've probably all heard one sermon or the other, right? Either someone telling us how depraved we are or telling us to get our act together. But I want to suggest a third way to read and to respond to this psalm. Because I don't think this psalm is meant to send us into a bunch of shame. And I don't think it's meant to give us a bunch of rules. In fact, I don't think this psalm is actually about us at all. Who is it about? Well, take a look. This psalm is about someone who has walked blamelessly and done what is right. It's about someone who spoke the truth and did no evil. It's about someone who opposed wickedness and honored the Lord. This psalm is about someone who was faithful, even to his own hurt. Who is this psalm about? It's about Jesus. 
This psalm is about Jesus. He is the one who has walked blamelessly without sin. He is the one who not only spoke the truth, but is the truth. He is the one who opposed the wicked even when they were religious leaders. He is the one who lifted up those who feared the Lord even when they were outcasts. He is the one who was faithful not only to his heart, but to his death, even death on the cross. He is the one who generously gives forgiveness and grace and does not charge interest. This psalm is about Jesus. He is not only the one who can dwell in the tabernacle, he is the tabernacle that came to dwell with us. He is the one in whom the fullness of God is pleased to dwell. He is the one who we worship. Jesus is the one who dwelt on the holy hill, but it is not the hill that anyone expected it would be. It was the hill of Golgotha, the hill of the cross. This is God's holy hill. And on that hill, he bled, he died, and when he breathed his last, something happened. The curtain in the temple was torn in two. The way to God's holy place was opened up. And by his resurrection and his ascension, he has made a way for us as well. God poured out his Holy Spirit on us, and he has made us into his temple. By the Holy Spirit, we become God's tent. We become God's holy hill. As it says in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, which you have from God? Or in 1 Peter 2, verse 5, Let yourselves be built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. In Christ, with the Holy Spirit, we become the worshiping people of God. As we are covered by Jesus' blood and filled with the Holy Spirit, we are transformed. As God does his work of transformation in our lives, we slowly begin to see more and more of ourselves in this psalm because we slowly begin to see more and more of Christ within ourselves. As we walk in the Spirit, we find ourselves speaking the truth in love and holding our tongues when the words are unkind. As we are conformed to the image of Christ, we find ourselves loving our neighbors and being faithful even to our own hurt. As we become God's temple, 
We overturn the tables of the money changers in our hearts, and we begin to give generously to those in need and to the purposes of God's kingdom. And we expect nothing in return. This is the work of the Spirit within us. So here's the challenge that I have for you this week. I want you to spend some time reflecting on your life, praying for forgiveness and transformation. Just like this psalm mentions hands and feet, eyes and tongues, maybe you can take a moment to sort of scan over your own body and reflect before God. What have my hands done? What have my eyes looked at and ears listened for? What has my mouth spoken? Where have my feet walked or refused to walk? As you reflect on each of these, take a moment to pray for God's grace to cover you and to pray for God's spirit to fill you. Oh, Spirit, fill our hands, direct our eyes and ears, guide our feet, be in all our words. I want to encourage you to take some time this week to reflect on your life and pray for forgiveness and for transformation. As this sermon comes to a close, and we come to the table of the Lord, we're going to sing a song with a question and an answer. It's a song that is full of good theological instruction, but it is also a song of deep, deep worship. What can wash away my sin? What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Let us sing.